0: The year is 1998. The British and Irish governments, along with most of Northern Ireland's political parties, signed the Belfast Agreement, ending the three decades of bloody conflict known as the Troubles. In the U.S., the four largest tobacco companies and the attorneys general of 46 states hammer out an agreement that requires the companies to pay a $206 billion penalty hiding the truth from the public about the bad health effects of cigarette smoking. A website called The Drudge Report breaks the story about an alleged affair between President Bill Clinton and a 22-year-old White House intern named Monica Lewinsky setting off a year of investigations, a flood of salacious gossip about the president's sexual habits, and his eventual impeachment for lying to Congress about his relationship with the young intern. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Paula Vogel's How I Learned to Drive, a memory play about the complicated relationship between a young girl and the older man who both loved and abused her. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. How I Learned to Drive came out seven years after the issue of sexual misconduct was pushed out into the open when an attorney named Anita Hill testified before Congress that Supreme Court Justice nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her. But the play came out four years before the Boston Globe published its series of articles about the sexual abuse of children by priests in the Catholic Church. The stories by The Globe and others prompted a national reckoning about the sexual exploitation of children in all parts of society, including religious institutions of all faiths, groups like the Boy Scouts and Little League teams, and within families. The stories also made the public aware of the concept of grooming. That's when adult predators pay special attention to needy kids, creating the opportunity for those adults to eventually take advantage of those young people. The adult in How I Learned to Drive is Uncle Peck. He's the only one in a working-class family to recognize and encourage the intellectual and social aspirations of the young girl they call little bit. Uncle Peck listens to Little Bit's dreams. He gives her gifts. He teaches her, as the title says, how to drive. But in exchange, he expects sexual favors. Little Bit knows that what he asks is wrong, but she also knows that she wants and even needs the attention he gives her. How I Learned to Drive tracks the way in which she navigates between those two realities and the consequences of her doing so. Vogel has long said that she was inspired to write the play after reading Lolita, Vladimir Nabokov's classic novel about a middle-aged man's obsession with his 12-year-old stepdaughter. Vogel's version looks at the story from the young girl's perspective. But without forgiving what he does, Vogel refuses to turn Uncle Peck into an out-and-out villain. This is a play that like its author, is deeply empathetic to everyone involved. Vogel was born in Washington, D.C. in 1951, but grew up in Baltimore, where she was so popular in high school that she considered a career in politics. But instead, she gravitated toward the theater because she felt that it would be more accepting and welcoming of her identity as a lesbian. She acted a little in her high school plays and worked on the stage crew, but she also began to write plays. She got a scholarship to Bryn Mawr College, but she said she got kicked out after her sophomore year for what she calls naughty behavior. So she finished up her B.A. in theater from Catholic University and then got an M.A. and eventually a Ph.D. from Cornell University. Right from the start, Vogel's plays turned classic narratives around to focus on the inner lives of women. At Cornell, she won a prize for a play called A Woman for All Reasons, a feminist take on Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. Later, another work, Desdemona, a play about a handkerchief, looked at Othello from the perspective of the female characters in Shakespeare's Tragedy. But even though Vogel continued writing and getting small regional productions, she spent most of the following decade teaching. She didn't gain national prominence for her own work until she was in her 40s. The show that did it was The Baltimore Waltz, a play about a brother and sister's mysterious trip through Europe that is revealed to be the fantasy of the sister whose sibling has died. It was inspired by the grief Vogel experienced after her older brother and longtime champion Carl died from AIDS. The Baltimore Waltz won the Obie for the best new play of 1992 and opened a whole new chapter for Vogel. How I Learned to Drive arrived six years later and won just about every award in sight another Ob, the Outer Critics Circle Award, the Lucille Lortel Award, the Drama Desk Award, and of course, the Pulitzer. But it is only now, in 2022, that the play will get its Broadway debut. Its original stars, Mary Louise Parker and David Morse, will reprise the roles of Little Bit and Uncle Peck when the show opens in April. That is long overdue, because How I Learned to Drive is a great play, and I've always thought it should earn Vogel a place in the pantheon of great American playwrights, right alongside Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, and August Wilson. But Vogel, who didn't get a show on Broadway until she was 65, when her wonderful play, Indecent, opened in 2017, may end up with an influence on American theater that extends even further than those male masters. During her years as head of the graduate writing program at Brown University, and later as chair of the playwriting department at the Yale School of Drama, she mentored such writers and fellow Pulitzer winners as Ayad Akhtar, Nilo Cruz, Chiara alegria hudes and Lynn Nottage. Vogel's generosity, and determination to even the playing field for women and playwrights of color are legendary. In fact, almost every playwright and a whole bunch of directors I've interviewed over the years have invoked her name as an inspiration and an advocate for their work. In recognition of her almost unparalleled role as a mentor, the Kennedy Center has created an annual Paula Vogel Award for the best student written play that celebrates diversity. And for the past 15 years, the Vineyard Theatre has given the Paula Vogel Playwriting Award to an emerging writer of exceptional promise. Past winners have included Antonette and wandu and Claire Barron, both of whom open in plays in New York this season. During the pandemic, Vogel herself teamed up with the McCarter Theatre in Princeton, New Jersey to create Bard at the Gate, an online series of works that she believes have been overlooked and deserve a wider audience. I so admire Vogel as both a playwright and a person, and so I was truly honored when she agreed to talk with me about how I learned to drive. Hello, Paula Vogel, welcome to All The Drama. Thank you, happy to be here. So glad to have you here. I wanted to start off by asking, do you remember how you got the news that How I Learned to Drive had won the Pulitzer? (laughs) Um,
1: I do. I was at home, and uh, Sam Rudy, my press agent, told me the previous Friday, he said, go get a haircut. (laughs) Um, And I said, oh, this isn't going to happen. He said, The Times has asked for your photographs, so get a haircut. And I waited by the phone. I knew it was at three o'clock and I didn't hear and I didn't hear. And I went, Oh, well, you know, it's been swell. And then at three thirty, I heard the phone ring. It was Sam Rudy saying, Paula, congratulations. You've won the Pulitzer. I have Kuala Lumpur on the line <laughs> to talk to you. And for the next hour, he just, he, you know, got me into these feeds. Uh, I kind of went around the world in 30 minutes. It was it was amazing. And in the middle of it, he managed to get Edward Albee in on a feed, who just said, Paula, this is Edward, congratulations. And I said, Edward, what do I do now? And he said, roll up your sleeves, start working on the next one. So that was a kick.
0: Well, that's um, a segue into what I was going to ask you next. Did winning have any effect on your work? Did it make it easier to go on to the next play or harder to go on to the next project?
1: I I don't think it had that kind of, of impact. I mean, I think, uh, if anything, it does make you self-conscious. Like, oh, my gosh, does everything have to measure up to that? I think one of the the benefits actually was in terms of my my work teaching, my work raising money, um, my work, uh, it gave me a spotlight to uh, shine on emerging playwrights and new plays. And so for that, I'm incredibly grateful.
0: How, if at all, does the show resonate differently for you now, um, particularly as we're moving into this major revival of it? Wow, what a great question. And I have to tell you, this is
1: what we've all been talking about. I know that there are still many, many, many productions being done on campuses and small theaters and abroad. I mean, it's been translated a lot. The thing that I think, for me, I'll know... I'll know how it resonates with the first audience. That's kind of significant in that we're all looking at this as a re-examination and not as much as a revival. It's very, very rare in the American theater, first of all, for women to get revivals while we're alive, but secondly, to have the cast. Yes. The, the actors who, who created it. I wish I had a, a, a dime... For every time someone said, oh my God, I saw the original cast and I'll never be the same. Well, these artists have spent 25 years doing extraordinary movies and films and plays. And they are in a different place in their lives as well. So when we get into the rehearsal room, we're telling a story based on those journeys. And the biggest shift is that we've gone from perhaps referencing Anita Hill to referencing Christine Blasey Ford and by that I mean you know when we opened people weren't talking about sexual predation and children this was before all of the movies like spotlight um and people weren't prepared in the audience they kind of came in and went oh a new play let's see what it is and now we're going to be entering as as a kind of aware Audiences as an aware public. And I think that the, the, the journey that we're asking everyone to take is in this present moment, let's process this together. You know, when you sit down and you write something, you think, well, this isn't going to be very pertinent 20 years from now, because I'm writing about something that's in our midst that we're not paying attention to. It's sort of like, you know, the Women's Project back in the 70s when they started thinking, well, you know, in another 20 years, there won't be a need for a women's project uh, as a theater doing women's plays. And of course, it's as pertinent today as as when we were working on it at the Vineyard.
0: One of the, the things that has always struck me from that first production was the empathy that the play and that you Uh, show toward Uncle Pet. And I wondered, did you always know that you were going to have this sort of sympathy toward him? Or did that evolve as you were writing the play? Well,
1: you know, I have always said, and it's true, that I wrote this to be Lolita from Lolita's point of view. And I think the thing that stunned me in my very early 20s when I was reading Lolita, is how empathic I felt towards Humpert-Humpert, how Nabokov used empathy in that book, in that novel. I didn't know what it would be like to write it as a play, but here was my starting question. Are we given more agency, more voice and control and power? Can we get our power back by being empathic, by reducing the monster to the size of a rather lovely failed man who's grappling with this problem, who, you know, in many, many ways, I think, is the perfect neighbor, the perfect family member. And and so when I was approaching this, I was thinking that our, our mythology was that there's a strange man in the trench coat at the playground that we don't know. And in truth, as you read the stories and the statistics, it turns out, of course, that their family members, their um, friends of the family, their next door neighbors who look and seem and and act perfectly normal, um, supportive of the family. So I knew from the get-go that this was going to be empathic. I didn't realize how empathic I'd feel. You know, I discovered that in the writing of it. The other thing in 1996 as I was writing this for 1995 was that there was a story of a, uh, uh, a ring, I think in New Jersey where they were, uh, the police were kind of, um, I don't want to say entrapping, but yeah, it was, it was entrapping predators. And a young boy was called in by the police to testify and talk to them about his, his experiences. And the young boy didn't want to. He felt such a grief and a guilt at turning in this this man who had abused him, but had also been someone who paid attention to him, who had been a father figure, who told me he was worth something. You know, it's a very, I think, mixed bag of an experience for For many children being called forward because they're being asked by a legal
0: system to put things into black and white well that's what i was I was going to ask you it It moves a little bit away from the play but over the, the these past twenty five years, have we learned anything as a society about how to deal with these men
1: Well, I think. Uh, it's interesting. When we first got together in the room, I said, I've got a tagline for how I learned to drive. And they said, what is it? Uh, and I said, it takes a village to molest a child. So everybody laughed. And of course, we didn't use that. But have we learned anything? I think what we've learned is that you can't expect children to be vigilant. You can't expect teenagers to be vigilant. It takes the family and neighbors and teachers and church and, you know, the church and rabbis, and it takes the community to be vigilant because we're really dealing with a state of of ignorance and innocence that can be manipulated. So in all of these situations, someone either didn't pay attention or just turned away as an adult.
0: I don't want to give anything away even though the play has uh, been around for 25 years there are people who have not yet seen it but there is a scene later in the play when the main character Lil little bit sort of replicates uncle peck's behavior with uh, a high school student and i've always wondered why did you include that
1: <laughs> i I think I wanted to show how very easy it is to, for all of us, in situations where we as adults or older people, you know, and again, let's be mindful that we are also looking, as a society, we're looking at someone in their early 20s dating someone who's 17, how how very, I think, it easy, easy it is for us not to hold on to borders. And and it is very easy because there is affection on the side of the adult uh, at times. Now this is not all cases, and one of the things I want to caution is that the play hopes to say to to have two forgivenesses. One is what the forgiveness of the character Uncle Peck, but most of all, the forgiveness is for ourselves as children. Hmm. Um, that, that complication of guilt and gratitude and affection, when I think so many of us may be being mentored or groomed is the word, I want us to have a forgiveness of self because the borders are very, very porous. And I don't think there's a single member of the audience who does not know this experience in some form. It may not be actualized. But of course we feel desire in our childhood and in our teenage years. We should not be feeling guilt as, as adults when we look back. So in many, many ways, I feel like this is a way for us to come together, um, have a forgiveness and an understanding of self in, in childhood, and reduce the monster from his mythic proportions to someone who's human, um, someone who doesn't need to control the rest of our lives. Mm. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, when we, when we look at, for example, Christine Blasey Ford's uh, accounting in front of the world of her experience when she was in high school. With now Justice Kavanaugh. With now Justice Kavanaugh does our
0: coming together
1: release the power of the memory? I
0: think it does. This is the play's Broadway debut but it has been done so many times so many places as you say around the world. Does having it come to Broadway mean something extra or special? I
1: have to say yes. You know, I just had my Broadway debut debut, uh, four years ago. I think what we're witnessing right now is a moment in time when we're bringing women
0: playwrights
1: to Broadway, Um, whether it's Alice Childress' Trouble in Mind after her death, or whether it's an upcoming production of Adrienne Kennedy when she is in her 90s. So what does it mean? It actually makes, I think, uh, an argument that the play belongs in the American canon. Um, It gives it a kind of credential. Um, It gives it a visibility. Now, the thing it probably won't be doing is giving me as a younger writer a platform from which to write for television and film. The the access that Broadway gives to film and television, I think, is extremely well-known. And for young men or for men who have a transfer um, within the life of a play, um, it gives them that access. So this has been a glass ceiling. And I have to just say, last night I I wrote on Twitter to Lynn Nottage to say, oh my God, thank God that we have an African-American woman playwright who has a show, a play on Broadway, a musical on Broadway, and her opera, based on her play, Intimate Apparel, opened last night. So I never thought
0: I'd see the day
1: um, where uh, women are starting to be this visible.
0: Well, you've been not only a trailblazer, but also an advocate. And I think all of us want to thank you uh, for that you've always been generous when talking about your plays to talk about other people's work and to advance other people's work and your plays stand by themselves as wonderful works but the advocacy you do is also greatly appreciated so thank you for all of that may may i put in a a a brief plug
1: yes of course Something that I did when we shut down the rehearsals of How I Learned to Drive in 2020 is I went home and I thought, okay, well, we almost made it to Broadway. And what do I want to do? This virus may have my name on it. And I thought, oh, I don't want to shuffle off my mortal coil before I see these plays that I've encountered that have either never been produced or were produced once in a tiny theater and then disappeared. So I called up my friends and I said, do you think we can do this? And we produced four plays last year uh, on a series called Bard at the Gate. Yes. We're now in our second season and we're partnering with an amazing McCarter Theater. And this year our production values have gone up. Um, We are raising money through donations. And I am convinced that by doing these plays, which are extraordinary, primarily by women writers, writers of color, uh, writers uh, with disabilities, writers who are GBLQT, we need to shine a light here, particularly for, for example, high school students or college students or people who live in small towns and can't get to New York or can't get to a regional theater. And when you watch these, you won't feel that you're watching Talking Boxes at all. We've gotten to a point now where digital theater gives us a real glimpse of being in the theater itself. At www.mccarter.org, you can find your way to the Bard at the Gate, So if you have younger artists or students or, you know, seniors, it's just show up. There's uh, a three-step process to log in and watch with us. And the next play is a wonderful play called Passing by Dibika, Guha. So I'm hoping that we can continue this and change the visibility of theater, go around the gatekeepers, and get an extraordinary diversity of writers. There's a, there's a point in time where we want to say, you know, it's wonderful to do, always wonderful to see Our Town, Glass Menagerie, Death of a Salesman. But what's going to be in the canon in the future? I'm presenting plays that I think must be seen. And you can watch them in your own living room. If you're in a nice little COVID bubble, you can have a watch party. We're starting to have watch parties at public libraries and churches. There's more than one way to have a community, even in the midst of COVID.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for that, too. And and thank you for talking with us um, about all of it. Really, really appreciate this.
1: Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jan.
0: And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.